0: About the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire.
1: Peace be with you. Friends, our gospel for today is taken from the beginning section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already symbolically established himself as the new Moses, going up on a mountain, giving a new law, Furthermore, his, you've heard it said, but I say, has revealed that he has authority even over the Torah. That's what he's talking about. You've heard it said in the Torah, the great law given by God to Moses. You've heard it said there, but I say, extraordinary claim of authority. What's clear, therefore, is that the law is not being abrogated, it's being intensified. The person speaking here is not an anti-Moses, he's a new Moses. He's not undermining the law, but rather he's raising it to a new pitch of intensity. See, we shouldn't play the either-or game here of, well, the ear of the law, that's all over, that's gone, now it's the ear of grace or whatever. Rather, it's the old law is now raised up which is why he says in the Gospel today, Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law. Keep in mind, the law was always meant to bring humanity into line with divinity. In the beginning, this was an easy matter. Adam and Eve before the fall, walking in easy fellowship with God. But then after the fall, the law has got to be given to bring divinity and humanity into alignment. And you might say, at the early days of the law, this was being done at a fairly basic level. But now that the definitive Moses has appeared, this alignment is becoming absolute, radical, complete. And so now listen to the Lord as he speaks. You've heard it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Well, killing is an action, obviously, but that action is rooted in a more fundamental dysfunction. It's rooted in a hateful attitude, a disordered soul, a basic misperception of reality. And so, to be like God utterly, we have to eliminate, obviously, cruel and hateful actions. But we have to go deeper, eliminating even cruel and hateful thoughts, even cruel attitudes. See, for God is love right through. Jesus is not eliminating the law here. He's intensifying it. In a very similar vein, Jesus says, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, the act is certainly bad. The act is grounded, though, in a dysfunctional attitude, a basic misperception, a compromise of the soul. So in order to be aligned to the God who is nothing but love, those underlying problems have to be addressed. You know, something I find really interesting about this, especially in in regard to this question of adultery, is how congruent this is with, think of Immanuel Kant, the great moral philosopher, his ruminations on the second form of the categorical imperative. Never treat another human being as a means, but only as an end. John Paul II picks up on that Kantian idea, too, in his own writings. Human beings should never be subordinated to be simply means for something. Well, that's, you know, Jesus saying about anyone who looks at a woman with lust, who's, who's seeing a woman simply as a means to an end. It's also congruent, I would say, with the best of feminist concerns about objectifying human beings. The point is, the conformity to God must reach to the roots of the self. And this is why, and it's one of the most remarkable sayings of Jesus in the New Testament. The Lord can say, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, an alignment with God that reaches all the way down, reaches beyond the level of action, gets down into the mind, into the heart, into the roots of the soul. Not just conformity externally, but an alignment internally. That's how radically the new Moses wants us to be aligned to God. Now friends, here's the thing. Once we have grasped this principle from the Sermon on the Mount, we can begin to understand something which is so scandalous to many people today. Namely, the proper radicality of the Church's teachings, especially in the moral order. See, here's here's the, here's the thing to think about. The Church's job, fundamentally, is to make saints... The church is not satisfied with producing spiritual mediocrities, producing people who are basically good. It wants to make people perfect, even as their Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I know this is a pretty tall order, and that's why most of the moral philosophies of the world end up compromising in serious ways. You know, holding out to us certain moral values, but not really pressing the issue all the way. That's why the church's view can seem so extreme and so unrealistic. I mean, time and again we hear that the church's moral demands, especially in the sexual arena, are just too stringent. You know, we hear over and over again the church ought to conform itself with societal expectations. We hear all the time, in fact just very recently a number of polls that came out of Europe, that huge pluralities of Catholics themselves want to lighten the moral load. Well, what do these data prove? Nothing, really, it seems to me, except that the Catholic moral teaching is difficult. But so what? To dial down our moral ideals is to compromise the Church's whole purpose. Do people balk at the Church's teaching? Well, yeah, they always have in a certain way. Maybe more publicly today or with less impunity today. People have always balked at the Church's moral teaching. Put to a vote, would most people change it? Yeah, sure, probably. It's hard. Most people find it hard. Of course they do. But the church's job is to make people perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect. You know, one way that helps me with this is to shift focus a little bit and look at another area of the Church's moral concern, namely war and peace. If you study the Church's teaching on just war, you'll see that the criteria that determine whether war is just are strict in the extreme. In fact, seven criteria have to be met simultaneously in order to justify going to war. Has to be a declaration by a competent authority. It's got to be a just cause. It's got to be proportion between the war and the and the good to be attained, et cetera, et cetera. It's got to be last resort. There's seven separate criteria that have to be realized simultaneously for a war to be considered just. Under these criteria, how many wars have in fact been just? I would say very few. More to it. In the actual waging of a war in Catholic social teaching, two other very strict requirements have to be met, namely proportionality and discrimination. That means there's gotta be, again, a proportion between the destruction that's foisted upon a a people and the good to be attained. But then discrimination means you gotta discriminate between um, that's foisted upon a, a people and the good to be attained. But then discrimination means you've got to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. Discrimination means you've got to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. Now, according to these latter two criteria, I would say many of the tactics of World War II, a war that most people would consider a, a just war, but many of the tactics of World War II would have to be condemned. Think of the Carpet bombings that took place in Germany and Japan. You know, discrimination? There was no discrimination. Noncombatants died by the hundreds of thousands. Most dramatically, of course, the atomic bombings. Proportionality, discrimination. I mean, I think even the most um, jingoistic supporter of those would have a hard time saying that those bombings met those criteria. But I'd be willing to bet at the time of the carpet bombings and atomic bombings, most Catholics would have voiced their approval. I bet most military people would have said the church's demands are just grossly unrealistic. Most civilians at the time would have used, you know, frankly, consequentialist reasoning to justify the atrocities. But so what? Should the church have dialed down its demands in this area. No, because the church is there to make saints, that we might be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the flip side of all this is the equally radical offer of forgiveness. See, to, to get the church's view right, we have to hit both these sides. The extreme demand, but now the extremely radical offer of forgiveness. Let's say, for sake of argument, the pilot of the Enola Gay, that's the the plane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, let's say the pilot, I think he was Catholic actually, walked into a Catholic confessional, and with complete repentance confessed his complicity in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent people. What would the priest say to him? Well, he might counsel him, he would probably assign a, a penance of some kind, but finally what he would say is, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In a word, he would echo the word of Jesus to the paralyzed man, to the woman caught in adultery, to Zacchaeus. The church, yes, makes an extraordinary ethical demand. It wants us to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And at the same time, the church makes a radical offer of forgiveness. To get Both sides of this right, and it's hard to get them both right at the same time. But to get both sides right is to get the Catholic thing. And God bless you.
0: I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.